Hey entrepreneurs, today we hear from Alex Oliveira. He came to the United States at 11 years old and started off as just a busboy. Today, he told us he has employed thousands of people over his entrepreneurial career. He has five different streams of income right now and shares with us some of the successes and failures and lessons learned throughout his career. He talks to us about his perspective on luck, on personal responsibility, and even what maps over from his podcast, Dadpreneur, into the business world as an entrepreneur and what elements are relative to both. This is a great podcast, Alex Oliveira. All right, Alex, welcome to the Entrepreneur's Podcast. Excited to have you here today. Uh, Rich and I look forward to talking a little bit more about your podcast yourself, Dadpreneur, as well as your company and really your entrepreneurial background. So can you start by giving our listeners a little bit of your history and in entrepreneurship and, and what you're doing today? John, Rich, thanks for having me. For your listeners, my name is Alex Oliveira. I'm originally from Brazil, came to the U.S. when I was 10 years old. And um, really, my, my entrepreneurial background ties back to my family in Brazil. My mom had 13 brothers and sisters, my dad 11. And in both sides of the family, everyone owned small businesses, you know. They weren't really company people. And so they came from like agricultural and farming and then moved to the big state of Sao Paulo, which is like New York, and found themselves sort of like, hey, I need a profession. And mostly everyone went into business, right? And I watched growing up a lot of aunts and uncles uh, do that, build businesses, um, but never be, they, they were never able to scale it. Even when they could get it to multiple locations, you know, employees and whatnot, whether it was the economy or their mishandling of marketing, uh, they would eventually come back around to let, you know, a business closes, starts a new one. And until this day, I still see some of them doing that. I have some uncles who are very successful, um, but they were never able to really scale it. And so when I came to the U.S. Um, at the age of 11, I was working as a busboy in an Italian restaurant in Delray Beach. I have pictures and it and it was like uh, today in today's world, you could never do that at age 11, work in a restaurant, yeah. right? Bussing tables. And I barely spoke English. Um, but yeah, coming to America was, was really the best thing that my parents did for the family at that time. Um, we were coming for a better life, really. That was it. It wasn't yeah. because we were escaping, you know, the government or anything like that. And, um, when they came here, like most immigrants, they were working all kinds of odd jobs, right? Construction, cleaning, mechanic. My dad was a welder professionally in Brazil, but couldn't find a welding job here. You know, and so we came to Florida and that's sort of every, where everything begins. And my mom eventually builds with my dad a multi-million dollar business. Um, and we had, I don't know, 40 plus employees. And um, yeah, and then she exited out of that. That's where I cut my teeth in entrepreneurship, you know, but I started early You know, I started working at 11 and never stopped. And I had that bug. And even though I went to college, I ended up dropping out of college to take over the family business. and. Um, at first, I, I didn't know if that was going to be a good idea or not, right? But yeah. I had sort of the approval of mom and everyone else was like, hey, if that's what you want to do, here's an opportunity. And it really was, was the best the best decision I made at the time. Um, and so that's kind of, that that brings me till today. And, and in the last 20 years, like most entrepreneurs, I've had a handful of really successful ventures and a bunch of others that didn't succeed. And I know exactly why they didn't succeed, you know? Mm. 
Well, I'd love to dive right into that. Uh, you know, certainly, as they say in the entrepreneurial world, right? Failures are just opportunities to learn more and, and get better. Can you tell us a little bit, maybe a sprinkling of the businesses that you've been involved with? And then I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into what were those learnings you had on both success as well as the, the failures you had? Sure. Yeah. So really, when I left my mom's company, which was was a textile business, like apparel, we yep. sold you know, clothing all around the U.S. and gift shops and things like that. When I left there, I entered the construction industry with very little uh, uh, knowledge of construction. But it was an uncle; it was one of my uncles who I partnered with, and so he didn't have the business acumen or the marketing. But he was a great craftsmanship, and I said, "Great, you know, you're a great crafter. Like, let let's do that." So I'll do the business end. You do the, the handling of the guys and the installers and whatnot. So we started that business and within a year, we were doing over a million in revenue, you know, doing high-end flooring. And of course, Florida has always been growing, right? So it's a, it's a market. We were in South Florida, a market that continually, continually grows. And um, it was great. You know, I, I got to learn the business from the front end, the back end. And eventually he left the business. I stayed with the business. And then I asked my wife, Erin, to leave her profession because she was in PR. She was doing, you know, really fancy campaigns like Tiffany's and Ronald McDonald House and all this stuff. I say, hey, leave and join me, right? Because I'm not going to be able to do this alone. You've got the marketing, the PR. So she did. And in 2006, it was, she joined me and we had a good four or five year run. Uh, the mistake that I made in that business, even though it was doing millions in, in, in revenue and we had employees and trucks, forklifts, you know, inventory was a really good business. But when the financial crisis hit in 08, it, it didn't really hit us until about 2009, end of 2009. Um, I was over leveraged because we were yep. doing home flipping as well. Okay. So combine those two businesses, right? It made sense. I'm like, I've got the construction business. Why not buy properties and, and rehab them and flip them? Except for when, when the, uh, the, the, the turn of the economy hit real estate specifically, we were left holding a bunch of properties and of course they were worth nothing. So yeah. I'm, I'm pulling money from here. I had invested money in a bit, uh, ice distribution business in Brazil with an uncle of mine, bought all this machinery so I'm over leveraged three businesses and none of them are doing good, you know? So yeah. that was a great lesson learned there because again, I had a rise, I had employees, I had, you know, uh, accounts with some big names like uh, Shaw and Pergo, like uh, cabinet makers like Armstrong. And these vendors were there to support us. But again, the demand wasn't there in the market. I had clients who weren't paying us. So it's not, no, no, no surprise to anyone who's been in business where you give people net terms and then they don't pay you. And so, you know, I find myself millions in debt, literally millions in debt and going, what next? So I decided to sell the commercial side of the business, the construction business, and uh, kind of divest myself out of the real estate holdings, divest myself out of my uncle's distribution business, who was doing very well today. 10 years later. Um, and yeah, and I did that all throughout all those things. I managed to not file for bankruptcy or foreclose on any of my properties. And it was the hard way to do it because my CPA and, and, and attorneys were saying, Alex, just, you know, file bankruptcy, 
foreclose on those homes. And, and principally for me, it felt like I shouldn't do that. But in retrospect, I should have done that <laughs> because my bounce back would have been much faster had I not spent the next five years negotiating myself out of, you know, um, uh, you know, credit lines with, with banks, with uh, vendors. And yes, I mean, I had hundreds and thousands of dollars from co- clients who never paid us yeah, because they filed bankruptcy. So I, I, I'm the reason I'm telling you this story and being so transparent is because what I t- try to tell small business owners is like, if you find yourself in that situation, take the advice of the professional, right? The CPA, the attorney, because they've seen enough cases and, and I hadn't. So I made the wrong decisions and it made my life, my wife's life. And at that time we started having kids today, we have four kids. Um, I can't imagine doing that again. If, if I found myself in that situation again, I definitely would, would, um, have made different choices. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, Alex, it, it's a fascinating story because when you, when you think about it, um, and you look back in hindsight, the effort and the hard work to get out of the situation that you found yourself in, um, I'm sure when you got out of it was incredibly rewarding. However, it took a toll, right? It took a toll on stress, right? It took a toll on, you know, as you're raising a family and, and going through all of that. But the learnings must have been absolutely immense. And your perseverance yeah. and resiliency to fight through it probably gave you confidence for the future of your, of your entrepreneurship and your career. Look, I can get myself out of anything. I, I, can, I can, you know, persevere through these types of situations. And that's really what entrepreneurship is all about in my mind. Because if, if you start something and you find yourself in trouble and you just take the easy way, uh, versus the the hard way, you don't learn the same lessons. Would you agree? I would agree. Absolutely. And and I did spend a lot of time reflecting. I think for me, it was like not only family, my employees, my customers, and most importantly, my wife, you know, I felt like, man, the weight on my shoulders, I took her out of her career. She yeah. helped me grow this. And then, and by the way, I, I would be very open with you guys here in that it her choice would have been to just stick to the business that was making money, not go invest in a bunch of other ventures. Right. She was a, f- a little bit afraid of that. And, and um, yeah. so I listened to my wife a lot more today. She's still in the business with me 10 years. This business that we've been in predict, which is a marketing lead generation shop. We've been at it for 10 years and um, I got really lucky, you know, in 2010, I went and worked for another company for about a year and a half in lead generation. And uh, well, it was closer to a year. I also had a a short stint at Home Depot, um, working for them as a contractor, uh, really trying to help their operations better their customer service, right? Their net promoter score and their their, um, um, just overall reputation. Because at that time, Home Depot had a really bad reputation in the market with their subcontractors. So I, I, I did that very well in my business, which was take care of my customers um, at any cost because we had an in-house installation team. And so for me, every time we walked in someone's home, whether it was a $5,000 job or a $150,000 renovation, I mean, from point A to Z, everything from material to labor had to be perfect. I treated it like my own house. And, you know, listen, we did over 3,000 residential jobs in, in the period of that the company was open from 2004 to 2010. So we did that many jobs and we did a lot of commercial jobs too. 
it was a great experience because I started in that business with zero knowledge of construction, you know, and I really love to see that whole process. But at the end of that, I was exhausted. I was exhausted. And um, when we divested ourselves out of the business, I said, what do I want to do next? And naturally, we both my wife and I decided that our strong um, sort of like superpower, our biggest skills on her end was PR, communications, content. And my side was lead generation, sales, SEO, PPC. Uh, We did that very easily. And that's what, what helped us grow the business, right? It wasn't because we were the best construction company in the area. It was just we can get in front of the most people. Um, so we said, why don't we do the same, but for other construction companies, we offer marketing services, lead generation. We know how to do that. We know how to train sales teams. And so that's kind of where we started. I, I, I want to say it was July, right after the 4th of July in 2011. So literally this past July, we just completed 10 years, still profitable, still growing. And I remember I was down to $5,000 in our bank account. And I shouldn't say my bank account, by the way, guys, because in that downturn, like most people, you have zero assets. And I had yep. zero assets at that point. And what I did have was a $5,000 uh, college savings for my first son who was born in 2010. Okay. So we, we said, look, we've got $5,000 there. Let's cash that out and start the business. Because the other 19 credit cards and credit lines that we had from the previous business, there was zero available. So, so that's where we started. And I got lucky. I got one big whale of a client right out the chute. And it, it, it just took off. And we started to pay off those debts, those loans, those creditors. And like I said, it took a good three, four years. But in those three, four years from 11 to 14, The company went from 700,000 to a million and a half, and it just kept growing. We got really lucky. And, and I, my first employees, by the way, were family. I had three cousins. Um, I had my sister in the business. So of course my wife, because I couldn't pay anybody that much. And I said, look, guys, you start with me and we're going to grow this thing big. And, um, and, and they really helped me. And, and so the rest is sort of history. Uh, and so, certainly I've had challenges in this business, like, like every other business, primarily sure. COVID COVID yeah. took a big hit. We took a big hit, but my experience from 2010 and 2009 yeah. and 10 from that business is like right here. And I, and I'm constantly using those learnings as you would, you would, um, uh, call it, uh, John using the learnings from those, those mistakes to make sure that we don't make those same mistakes again now, you know, and, and, and yeah, I would absolutely. say if you ask me, what was the biggest lesson? Yeah. The biggest lesson from that um, crash and burn was to make sure that you're not over leveraged with your cash, your cash yep. flow. And so today I invest, I, I have investments in five startups. Even if those investments go south, even if my my own personal investments in cryptocurrency and whatnot go south, it's yep. not going to take down this business and it's not going to take down my family, right? Yep. And so I would say for everyone who's starting out and thinking, man, look, my, my business is starting to grow. Don't go invest in other companies until you get to a certain level where yep. you have enough of a runway, enough IP, enough of an exit strategy in your current 
uh, you know, business yep. to go do that. Yeah. So, Alex, you know, you know, Rich, I'm sure that you would agree, you know, the concept of really lucky. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure you were really lucky. I think luck is where hard work meets opportunity, right? And the hard work and the perseverance you got, Rich, I mean, when you think about it, do you think he was lucky in this case? Uh, <laughs> no, I was going to ask him about it on the perspective on that you got lucky. You said that once or twice. And well, I think any entrepreneur would acknowledge uh, you're not always in control of the opportunities that come up for you. Sometimes the opportunities, it can be lucky that that opportunity came but it's the preparedness for that opportunity that's the not lucky part. Can you talk to us about what did you have to do in order to be prepared to take advantage of a lucky opportunity when it did come your way? Yes, absolutely. And and, and I agree, you know, I mean, I think part of saying luck or for some, they'll call it blessings, right? Is, is sort of acknowledging that we're not in control of everything. I think that's mainly where, I, where it comes from. But I do agree that uh, there is, a, in my head, there's a concept that I think of luck as I have to create that luck. And creating that luck is part art, part science. So when I talk to clients about doing their marketing, right, or scaling their business with their lead gen and, and sales teams, I say, look, it's, it's like a Venn diagram. You have three circles here in this Venn diagram, and it's art science and luck. And that luck is you have to do the, the, uh, art and the science, the science is like, you have to learn things, right? Put 10, 20, 30,000 hours, hire the right people who have a good track record. And then the art is being creative. So bring those people who are creative, want to take the risks, want to hustle, really, really hustle. And, and then the luck is like, if you've done those two and you've put those yourself in those places, like I, I'll give an example. I never forget 2012, I'm at a trade show in uh, San Francisco, a trade show called AdTech. Ariana Huffington was over there uh, um, signing her book. I think she had just sold her, her blog for like, I don't know, 300 million to AOL. And so she's signing her books and I'm going, man, I have her book. I want to get her signature, but you know what? I need to make the most out of my meetings and my, my, my sessions and the exhibit hall here, right? There's 10,000 people from all over the world at the Mascone center over there. So instead of going to get the signature, which is sort of just, you know, self-satisfying, it's got nothing to do with business. I said, let, let, let me head down to the sessions. I kid you not guys, I'm on this huge escalator. And on this escalator that takes probably about 30 seconds to go up three floors, I look behind me and start a conversation with this guy. That guy ends up being a multi-million dollar client. We started the conversation, came off the escalator, talked for about a half an hour, and months later, we're signing contracts and we're doing a huge lead gen campaign. So was that luck or was that hustle, art, science, putting myself in the right place? Yeah, I agree, guys. It's 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 the grit, right? It's making those decisions at the moment that 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 it's kind of like trying to have the foresight and go, should I do this or should I do that? What's going to benefit me the most now versus later? And and in that particular situation, as well as many others, it is not doing what just feels good, but 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 understanding like. What are you looking for? Like, what's your why, right? And for me, my why was I need to grow this company so that I can get out of this other situation. 
And um, yeah, so again, you could call it luck, being at the right place at the right time. He could call it luck, but ultimately it's you have to create that luck. I have a question for if we rewind, you had said that there was a crash and burn. And I think Mm. the culmination of that crash and burn uh, was your option to file bankruptcy or not. You just said there are opportunities where, you know, you pick this or that. You were advised by professionals to file bankruptcy. You chose to not do that. I imagine there's a particular value or two who you know yourself to be that drove you to not take their advice because you're like, that's not who I am. That would violate a core principle of a value I hold dearly. So first of all, it's a two-part question. First of all, I'm curious, what is that value or two that guided you to not take their advice? And now that you say, the second part is, now that you say, I'd take their advice if I could go backwards. How do you (laughs) reconcile that against the value you are holding so dear? Man, Rich, you, you're digging deep there, man. That is, that's a, yeah. So look, I think um, for me, let me give you the background. Why, why not do it? Well, first of all, everyone in that market who, who, anyone who was in business was crashing and burning. And what I kept hearing from attorneys and I, you know, consulted also outside counsel and everyone I'm hearing from is going, look, my client, this is their fourth, fifth time filing bankruptcy. The first thing that came to mind was like, is that the person I'm going to become? Because in my eyes, and I'm not here to like criticize people who file bankruptcy. I have people in my family who have, and friends who have filed bankruptcy. If you need to, then do it. But I found it that the idea of filing bankruptcy would probably create a path for me where I would continue to do that down the road. Right. Because now I, oh, well, you know, it's okay. If it doesn't work, then I just put it off on the banks and the banks put it off on the insurance company and then the insurance companies. And it becomes this cycle where everyone else is holding the bag and the government's holding the bag and then the taxpayers are holding the bag. And and when I kind of track that all, I go, I don't want to be that person. And the why I didn't want to be that person, again, it's no dig at anyone who needs to or has filed bankruptcy because every situation is different. The reason why I would say I would do it today, if I found myself in that situation, I have four kids, I have mouths to feed, right? And I know that in business every day when I wake up, I'm serving my clients the right way. I'm not doing anything unethical, right? I I work with companies, I buy traffic, I sell traffic, I help companies grow their business. My team does the same. And so I would do everything in my power to make sure that that business can, can restructure itself. So whether it would be chapter 11 or seven or whatever it is, who knows, right? And I think that that's the option that I, I took. Wasn't a bankruptcy that I would fold and walk away from the responsibility. I was presented with the idea of like, hey, if, if you file this way, you may still stay in business and you, you're, you're, all you're going to do is be able to restructure those debts. And that I would do today because I have lots of other responsibilities and there will be a way out to, hey, the company stays in business. I'm able to show that I can kind of get back to the, into the blood out of the red. Now, then and still today, the reason 
why I feel so strongly as to why I didn't didn't do it then is is because coming to this country as an immigrant, there is already the perception, which is quite frankly, if if you don't mind, is bullshit, that immigrants are here to just take from the government. There's nothing from like there's no truth to that. Okay. And I can tell you because I work with many immigrant groups, not only Latinos, but from all other countries, um, the majority guys, the majority, and I hope your audience doesn't matter if you're on the right, the left, what your politics are. Trust me, the majority of immigrants for, for centuries that have come to this country, they're coming here not to take from the government. They're coming here because they want to work hard. They want a better life. They pay their taxes. Okay. In many cases, what people don't even know about a lot of the illegal immigrants who come here, they actually do pay taxes and social security, except for when they're deported, they never collect on that. So where do you think that money goes? The money stays here. Right. And so for me, I had this stigma in my mind, like I'm already an immigrant and I was already a citizen by then. I I got my citizenship in 2002. Okay. So I already felt like, yeah, okay, I'm a citizen. I can vote. I can, you know, contribute to the community in bigger ways, which was always my goal. Right. Uh, But for me, I've experienced enough racism and enough uh, people uh, put down immigrants, uh, specifically entrepreneurs and say, well, that that one immigrant filed bankruptcy. And and they're here just to take from us, from the government. And then they file bankruptcy, go back to their country. I don't know anyone who's done that personally, but I, I've heard on the other side, the flip argument, which really bugs me, right? Really bugs me because then I have this chip on my shoulder going, I mean, look, man, I've employed thousands of people. My family, since we've been here, we have put food on, on the table of thousands of people, not hundreds, thousands. My, my, my companies combined have generated over a hundred million dollars in revenue. I pay my taxes. I've paid a lot of taxes, you know? And so for me, it was partly this stigma that I felt that I would carry, right? As an immigrant entrepreneur who, oh, you filed bankruptcy because you're trying to find an easy way out. I've never taken welfare of any kind. And most people that I know Definitely all my family members and friends, they have never taken welfare in any way, shape or form. So I know it's a little bit outside the question that you asked, but it's giving you the why I didn't do it. It's not like a really an ethical thing. It was more yeah. of a, I, I don't want to be a victim, right? Yeah. So I'm going to go the hard way. So the next person that tries to tell me that immigrants are this or that, I can say, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. I think that is absolutely powerful. And while bankruptcy is set up as an option in the United States, really to save the entrepreneur in the event of a failed business, so that entrepreneur can go start another business. You said, yeah, I'm not going to go that route. I'm not going to leave somebody else holding the bag to pay off the debt that I created. I know these are tough times. I know that there are a lot of people doing it, but I don't want to propagate a stereotype around immigrants that I don't want to be part of that. And instead, it sounds like the values you tapped into were, I am not a victim. I control my circumstance and I'm going to take personal responsibility. That's more important 
than me making it easier for me to start another business. So along the lines of personal responsibility, you had said, hey, I have four kids now. There's a lot of personal responsibility in having four kids. And you're now saying, hey, I would prioritize my personal responsibility to my four kids over my personal responsibility to pay off debt when there are laws in place that say, save the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I think that that whole storyline makes a ton of sense. And I don't think there's a listener that we have that would judge you for the evolution of your decision making, which bring, brings me around to you have a podcast yourself that is dead. I do. Entrepreneur. Yeah. And you have four kids. Personal yeah. responsibility is important to you. You have a podcast, Dadpreneur. I would love to hear your take on the lessons from being an entrepreneur and how they mirror the lessons of being a parent and how to be a dad. What sure. lessons are there that you feel, you know, you can apply from business? And you're like, that's if I apply what I know in business back at home. And if I apply back at home, what I do in business, like what are those lessons that map over for you? Sure. No, that's a great question. And and that's why there is the Dadpreneur podcast, because I found myself for I about four years ago with my agency was growing and I had a big team in the office. But I was uh, getting a little burnt out. And I said, I, I, my wife and I said, look, we need to change the tune. Now we, at that point, we had three kids and we love to travel, but man, growing a company, you can't be taking, you know, unlimited numbers of vacation. You got to be there. So I said, look, we're going to go virtual and which really helped us during COVID. We went virtual four years ago. So, Hey, I don't care where you live. I don't care if you work from home, there's going to be an office in South Florida. And if you want to go in the office, great. If you don't, you're going to work remotely. And we changed the way in which the company sort of like logistically was, was performing for clients. And that really benefited us. Number one, that opened up the path to say, now I can work from home, which I was not a big fan of working from home. You know, I always thought, oh my God, my kids are going to like interrupt me. I can't do this. I can't do that. And that was bullshit. That was just the mindset because I work fine from home now, three plus years later, since, um, since I've been doing it. Right. So it was just a mindset. And, um, so we said, hey, let's move up a little bit north uh, to the Space Coast here, um, right outside of Orlando, where it's a little bit less busy. In the county I live in, in Brevard, there's 600,000 residents. Where I lived before in South Florida, there's 6 million people, right? So much slower pace. And I said, let's do homeschool. Let's try homeschool. Let's buy an RV. And let's like really live that life, reward ourselves for the hard work. And um, and here we are, three years later, it's working Beautifully, not without its challenges, but what I apply from my dad life to the entrepreneur and vice versa, I really, I think the principles of like being a leader is really important. So I teach my kids to be an independent thinker, right? And homeschool really allows us to do that. So being an independent thinker and not doing what the the crowd is always doing. If everyone is going in that direction, but you feel in your belly that that's the direction you want to go in even if it doesn't if everyone else is telling you don't go then then do it right so don't be a follower be a leader i use that in entrepreneurship i use that in that in in my everyday dad life um the finances you can't you can't talk about being a parent um and talk about being an entrepreneur without 
having a deep understanding of finance, right? So financial literacy is important. I've been involved with nonprofits like Junior Achievement and others where they teach kids financial literacy. Listen, you need to teach yourself and your kids at an like your kids at an early age. As early as they can understand the tooth fairy and the money, you have to make them understand that you have to um not always splurge and get what you want, right? And, and just because you have it. Um so understand that your privilege is 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 not like you you shouldn't squander that privilege on anything that you want just because you have it right there. So again, the concept of saving, working hard today and then saving enough, investing enough so that you can get to a, a, a certain milestone and then say, now I can reward myself with whatever it is, right? So the example of my son, my son who's 11, he's our oldest, Luca. This summer, he worked for me as an intern. I, I had to go through the whole process, fill out a resume. I did a, a you know an assessment, a disc assessment on him. I mean, I did the whole nine. And um, so he worked for me and he was doing like spreadsheets, data entry, um, managing my LinkedIn an 11 year old managing my LinkedIn, sending out messages. He worked with my virtual assistant. So of course, to make sure that everything was perfect. Okay. But he did amazing work. And I think he ended up working about 60 hours throughout the summer. And it was great for him. It was great for me. I learned a lot and I, I got to not be the parent at that moment. I got to be his employer and look, Luca, you're going to show up on time to the office. You are going to dress up for the occasion. Like, don't come like in your pajamas and with your hair all messy, because I'm not going to accept that. Right. And he earned the money. And the big reward that he wanted was this, uh, um, um, what is it called? A Switch, Nintendo Switch game, a little thing that's like 300 bucks. I said, great. But just because you have 300 bucks in the bank doesn't mean you can go spend the 300 bucks, right? So he knew he had to earn enough. We went out, went to Best Buy. We bought it. It's his, his own money. And yeah, you know, he's got his little bank account at Bank of America over there. And monthly we look at it and he got some tooth fairy money or grandma or grandpa sent him money. We put it in there and it's just opening up their eyes to how money works. And being an entrepreneur and a dad, those two things things go hand in hand. And I explained to them that money, it, it money isn't evil, right? Like money is meant for you to do great things. So first of all, your quality of life, your health, there is a correlation, of course, between your education, your health, your everything between money and that. So when, when people try to paint money in a negative light, like, oh, you're not going to be happy if you have money. That's bullshit. Okay. You, you can still be a happy person and, and be well off and build wealth. What do I do with some of my wealth? Well, we make we do a lot of donations and a lot of time um, to nonprofits. But before we do that, we help family members or whoever, friends, when they need it, right? If someone needs help, a leg up. Like I had a cousin in Brazil who recently um, wanted to start a boutique. I was able to help her, right? It wasn't a big loan. It was a $10,000 loan. But I'm in that position to be able to help someone. And it wasn't an investment. I want none of it. It's not a, 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 I'm not an angel. I'm just literally lending you the money at zero interest. When your business takes off, pay me back. That's it. I mean, so could I buy something nice for myself? 
could instead of driving a Ford Explorer, could I drive a, a you know an Escalade or something bigger? Sure, but those things don't bring me joy. What brings me yeah. joy is helping people around me, and I think that the entrepreneurship and the the outcomes that come out of your success and then teaching that to my kids, I, I hope that goes a long way for them. So Javier, the critical lesson you said you learned, right? Um, that that I I've learned as well, by the way, the hard way uh, as well, uh, almost the exact same lesson, which is cash flow is king. Uh, not over leveraging your business or yourself as an individual leads to a different quality of life. Because if your business can generate, you know, free cash flow, and you're a debt, you know, a, a profitable, debt-free, you know, cash-flowing business, you can start doing things that you can't do when you're over-leveraged, and all the money you're making is going to the bank, and you're 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 trying to invest in your business, but you're you're investing with borrowed money versus investing with profitable cash flow. Um, Obviously, all the things you just talked about, financial literacy, the ability for you to loan money to, to friends and family that want to do things and help out the community, you, you're able to do that now because you learned this lesson about not over-leveraging and building mm. a cash flow profitable business. Mm. I'm a financial geek in those terms, uh, so I'd love for you to share with us very specifically, if I'm an entrepreneur here, and we say this a lot, Rich, this is right out of your, your playbook, but you know, if I'm listening to this, I go, hey, Alex, I love this. How do I do it? How, how do I, what are the two or three things I need to do in my business today to make sure that I'm not over leveraged and I'm, I have a good cash flowing business? Sure. It really starts with understanding your financial statements. I used to hate balance sheets, profit and loss reports, income statements. You know, if somebody talked about EBITDA, I'd go, what? What are you talking about? You know, back in 08, 09, I'm like, yeah, my company's doing like 2 million in revenue. I've got, you know, $400,000 in profit. Why do I care about all this other stuff? Leave that to the accountant, to the accountant. Well, that was a mistake because, you know, instead of studying, studying, really studying each line item, where it's going, what comes out, what comes in, um, I was leaving it to other people. And that was a mistake. And by the way, I to kind of be open with you guys here about this. I made this mistake again, 2013. That year, I hired a uh, recent grad won't name what university. It was a great university, but he's a recent grad and he was pursuing a, a, a career in accounting as a CPA. And I gave him a shot at being, doing all the books, doing everything, right? Paying the FICA, all of that. Anyways, this young man made so many mistakes that by the time we caught it, we had to go back and forth with the IRS to fix it. And if anybody has dealt with the IRS, you know it's a pain in the ass. I mean, it will keep you up at night. And from 2013 to 2016, I think it was for a period of three years, I had to deal between myself, the accountant, everyone trying to fix those mistakes and find out where, where did he make those mistakes? Right. And so again, that was a hiring mistake on my part. And instead of saying, giving it to a professional, and of course the professional, by the time he caught the mistakes, it was too late because now you're on the IRS's radar, right? And, and, and the mistake was how much we paid in FICA versus what the IRS thought we should owe. And I'll, I'll tell you what the mistake was. Someone filed using our EIN number way more than what we pay them. Oh. So had a professional found that and had I been looking at the numbers, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like I had a thousand employees. I had like, you know, I had like 30 employees. 
So it would have been nothing for me quarterly to sit down with this young man and go employee by employee. Did, did, did everything get filed properly, right? Did the 1099s, W-2s, and I didn't do that. I was too busy growing, you know? So I've not made that mistake since, but if I take the mistake from before that, it was, I had two business coaches, uh, one who was more of a financial coach, another one who was more of a business coach, really helped me take the time to learn everything there was that I need to at that high level, right? To read the statements daily. And it's, it takes less than it takes five, 10 minutes. I, I get those statements daily. It's on the cloud. I look at it. Everything looks great. I look at the different bank accounts. I mean, it, it doesn't take that long. So it's really minding your business, really minding the numbers. And if you do that, you probably are never going to find yourself in a situation where you're ne- you're getting negative cash cash flow. So, for example, if I see that there is accounts who, that are over past thirty days past due, you know, clients who aren't paying us, I don't push that off to the bookkeeper or to anybody else. I get on the phone. I don't even send an email. I'll get on the phone with that client, have a good conversation. What's going on with your business? I don't want to chase you or send you notices, right? Because that's very impersonal and that goes nowhere to just keep sending them reminders. I get on the phone and I say, what's going on? You know, do you need an extension? What do you need? But I'm not going to supply you more inventory if you're not paying me. Okay. And I'm going to make sure that we are paying all the credit cards, all the credit lines on time. So that, so it's really studying the data, the data that comes in. And if you do that, you're probably going to find that some of it you don't understand. Uh, at which case, there's plenty of courses and plenty of accountants and people out there who can coach you on that. So getting that coaching yep. is crucial. Well, getting a financial coach is, is really interesting because, Rich, you and I have talked a lot about you know executive coaching and leadership coaching uh, and performance coaching. But um, you know, when, you, when, you, when you think about it, on the finance side, you know, I, the rule of thumb that I typically use, Alex, is can an entrepreneur properly read and articulate the balance sheet? <laughs> right. Uh, the income statement is one thing. Hey, revenue, expenses, profit. Uh, I get it. I understand. I see what's going in and going out. But then when you usually put a balance sheet in front of an entrepreneur and say, explain this to me, uh, you know, in terms of retained earnings or deferred revenue or your liabilities, your short term liabilities versus your long term liabilities and your equity on the balance sheet. When, when an entrepreneur can properly articulate their balance sheet, I feel like they've developed the financial literacy skills. Um, but until that point, getting a coach to help you get there is really, really important. What I heard from you, if I, if I boiled everything you, you said down to like three keys to, to what you believe uh, entrepreneurs should do is understand your financial statements, number one. And if you, if, you, if you don't know how to read them, get help to read them because there's a lot of help out there. Number two, don't fully rely on others to do your finances and, and be blind to them. And number three is review them consistently. There's no yeah. reason as an entrepreneur, you can never be too busy to, to your point, look on the cloud at your financial statements and make sure you understand what happened that month or that quarter uh, with your it, finances. Is that good? It, it's great, John, but I'll give you one more that kind of depends Please. on the growth and the scale. If you, Hey, I want to scale my business uh, yeah. next one day, leave a legacy for my family. Well, and I, and the guy, the, the, the entrepreneurs, business owners who are really great at finance feel like, yep. well, if I can do those things, then I'm I'm good. Well, no, you're not good because in today's world, in today's world, your business 
can only grow if you have that digital presence, whether you're B2B, B2C, manufacturing, whatever it is, right? You need your, your brand matters. When people are looking for your, your services, your products or services, they start right here on the smartphone. That's where it starts. All of it, not 98%, but all of it. You could think back to the last time you needed a, a, a repair or a dentist for your kids or whatever. You start on your smartphone. So if you're a business and you can't be found, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to scale. So if I back that into, I need to have a web presence. I need to generate leads, generate traffic for my sales team. Well, my first question to you is, how much does it cost you to acquire new clients online, whether it's social media, PPC, whatever? If you don't know that number, but you're, you're all fancy on your financials, you're not going to be able to grow because your marketing team and sales team need to talk to each other in order for the, the balance sheet and everything else to be able to look good and be able to grow consistently. And what I hear from some business owners who happen to be in businesses that don't depend as much as on online, they're saying, well, I'm fine. My business is manufacturing or wholesaling, and I don't really depend on in, in the online presence. They say, well, yeah, but you still need to understand from the marketing to the sales, like what is the cost to acquire? And what I see that most business owners can't do today, even the ones who are great at reading financials, they can't read marketing analytics and data, data from their web. So my main question for, for anyone who has who is selling or generating leads online for their business is how many people came to your website today? How many clicks did you get? How long did they stay on your page? Which ones converted into a lead? Where did the leads go? If you can't answer those questions, you're going to have a problem eventually with your balance sheet, with your income statement and everything. So there is a there is a an exercise for you to do as an entrepreneur and business leader to say, I need to know my marketing data, but I need to know my finance data. And the two have to be tied to each other. Because if you are going to go into a shark tank and, and pitch your business to you know VCs, there's a correlation between those two. And technology, right? Being able to talk, make sure that the data talks between one side and the other. So, you know, again, even making making it easier for people to pay. So let's say if you're an e-commerce business, making it easy for your customers to pay, to pay, whether it's a Shopify website or a WordPress site, and you might have a Stripe option where the payments happen quickly, they're in your account quickly. And marketing, sales, and accounting and finance are all talking to each other. And all the while, the customer is happy. You're getting paid. I still have customers who the only option for their customers to pay them is via a check or an ACH. And I'm thinking, there's no reason why your customers can't get an invoice or, or have a portal to log into and see their payment history. Because back to the smartphone, Look at how all of us shop online. If you're not giving your customers, B2B, B2C, wholesale, whatever, an experience like an Amazon, right? It, at some point, you're probably going to lose to the competition. Yep. Everyone wants the ease and the, you know, just the speed with the interaction. So again, accounting is great. Check. But the second piece of it is marketing to sales and understanding your cost to acquire new customers. Thanks for that. When I look on your LinkedIn profile, you've got five 
opportunities you're currently involved in that have the start date to present. Clearly, you value multiple income streams. I'm curious on how you reconcile some advice we've got from some past guests that say, don't chase the shiny object. Don't get distracted. Stay focused on your core business. So those seem to be what you're doing is different than that. I want to have multiple income streams, and I think there's value to that versus somebody saying, I'm not going to get distracted from my core, and there's value to that. How do you reconcile those two very different approaches to being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think it's um, it, it's your risk tolerance, number one. It's also your ability as a human being, your own behaviors, your ability to be uncomfortable, walk and chew gum at the same time. Some people are very steady, right? They're very high on the on the on um, disc profile. If you look at their behavior, they're very steady. They don't they don't like to have this this uh, plethora of of businesses and things to be doing. They want to come in every day and do A, B, and C, A, B, and C. And and by the way, that could work very well for you. And you stick to one income stream and you grow that. Um, and you could probably exit and build the legacy that way. That's one path. My path is what excites me is to do new things, right? But still build the current ones. And an advice I got from a co- client when I was in the construction industry one time, this guy was a banker, Kurt Yonker, never forget his advice. He says, look, um, follow the money. That's the rule. The rule is not to only focus on one thing. The rule is to follow the money. So If you have a portfolio, if you buy cryptocurrency, if you buy real estate, do you have only one property? Do you have investments in only one equity? No, you diversify. Well, diversifying doesn't mean that I can't pay attention. Like, I I mean, my portfolio, I've got, I don't know, 50, 60 different stocks that I own. I look at all those and it excites me. I want to see what's going on with those companies. I probably know 1%. Um, Cryptocurrency, real estate. I have real estate. I I can do all of those things. And I have people on my team who can help me do all those things. Now, they have to be people with the right capabilities, the right skills, right? Um, but you can do all those things. Look at uh, Elon Musk. Look at Warren Buffett. Look, I mean, we have so many examples in the world. Uh, gigantic. Those are gigantic examples. I'm a, I'm a minnow compared to those guys. But I modeled myself a lot after those guys in that, man, if it excites me to pursue new opportunities, by the way, even when sometimes the opportunity doesn't seem like it's going to be profitable on the front end. For example, my teaching my teaching journey over the last four or five years, I've done over 200 uh, uh, on-premise training, like corporate training, speaking webinars, uh, classes. I work with BizHack now. I've taught courses at Florida Atlantic University. I never considered myself to be a teacher, but I, when I when I started that journey, I started it with the intention that I would brush up on my very, very low level teaching skills for my kids, for their own homeschool education. Yep. And as it turns out, I'm doing both. I'm, I'm homeschooling four kids with my wife and I'm still teaching other business owners how to scale using marketing lead generation. And I'm still doing my business. Now, some of those businesses, I have maybe one or two hours of interaction per week, right? 
because I have a team there, a team who's capable of doing it. And as long as I'm looking at the data from marketing to sales and finance, I can do all those things. And people say, well, how much time do you have in a day? It was like, listen, we can all do it and still enjoy life and still, you know, uh, live a meaningful life, but it is being organized. And um, I don't hate anybody. I have clients who literally solely focus on one product, not only one company. So it's like one venture, one product, that's it, nothing else. I've, I've got no problems with that. If that's what makes you happy, do that. That's not what makes me happy. So love it. I, I, and Alex, I'm, I'm the same way. Uh, multiple streams of income and, uh, Certainly, uh, throughout this conversation, one of the books that kind of keeps resonating in my head that I'm sure you're a big fan of for whatever reason, I don't even know if you read uh, books, but, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Oh, sure. Uh, Kawasaki, and, and the yeah. concepts, you know, the concepts you talk about, about the dadpreneur and, you know, teaching your kids about financial literacy and multiple streams of income and real estate and different areas. You know, that book has kind of come as a, as a theme uh, I've been hearing through your voice throughout this conversation. So I figured that you're probably a fan of that I saw, book. I, uh, saw Ro- I saw Robert early on, I want to say 99 or, 2000, yeah. 99 or 2001. It was a, a conference with um, Tony Robbins and all those yeah. guys, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, good. I, I probably saw him around the exact same time, actually, in New York. All right, yeah. so... Alex, speed round. You can only give one word answer or a very short sentence to these questions. And we're going to go through six different components. All right. All right. First one. What is the one thing companies do not do from a marketing perspective to scale that they should be doing? Consistently generate content online. That's website. That's everything. Consistently generate content. Love it. Love it. What is the one marketing software that you think companies should be using to, you know, invest in their marketing uh, content or, or, or delivery? Web analytics. And if you want something free, Google analytics, but analytics period or Google marketing platform is another one. Okay. Awesome. What's the most important marketing metric that an entrepreneur should know off the top of their head? Cost per sale, like how, which it, which is tied to the cost per acquisition. So, it, it, in the example of a car, car car dealers, they will pay for leads and and, and marketing all day. So long as for uh, certain models, for every car that sells, it can't exceed five hundred dollars in marketing costs. So, understand your cost per sale. Love it. You can't say rich dad, poor dad. What's your favorite book of all time? Okay. Um, Simon, Simon Sinek's why. Yeah. Uh, love it. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Start with why. Um, you said crypto and you've invested in crypto and, and so have I, what is the one cryptocurrency that you're most excited about? Um, Ethereum. Okay. Uh, we can have a whole different conversation on that one, but we'll, we'll leave that for another conversation at a different time. <laughs> What is the one thing, this is the last one, what is the one thing that dadpreneurs need to do to balance their business with their family? Yes. Uh, I, if, if you could see my arms moving right now, okay? Flexibility, baby. Being able to adapt. Flexibility. You've got to be flexible. So it's a mindset. Being okay with things not going according to plan and then moving fast to adapt. 
Awesome. I wish I could keep asking you these speed round questions. So all these <laughs> yeah, answers they, were fantastic. But, and by the way, I, I don't know if you tell your audience this, we did not go through these questions before. So <laughs> no, I, absolutely I, I, not. I, I love, I love the spontaneity. I really do because then it comes from the heart, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, that's a good way to end this podcast. Ox. I think I, I, we appreciate you sharing with our audience from your heart, you know, how you've grown as an entrepreneur and developed as an entrepreneur, the learnings you've had as an entrepreneur. And, and certainly there's a lot of things here that people should take to heart, right? Um, as they, as they listen to this conversation and think, think about it. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You're Alex. welcome. You're welcome. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, John. And you know, uh, I'm, I'll make sure I keep getting your podcast out there. What you guys are doing is real, real important. Uh, and hopefully the podcast world keeps growing because I think there's so much greatness that's coming out of uh, podcasting these days. So absolutely. Thank you very much. Take care guys. Please stick around for a few more minutes while Rich and I break down this episode. His message about personal responsibility and not being a victim really resonates with me. I feel like that's something you and I learned back in the day in college, bro, where it didn't matter what the weather was. You had to do the painting and you could have done something else. And from a really young age, this idea of you're responsible for the path that is ahead. You're not a victim of circumstance. You create the circumstance. Uh, I love his story about personal responsibility that he used with the debt that he was in. And then how he's kind of transitioned that to his personal responsibility as a father. I think his story really resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And I appreciate you asking him that question, right? Like what, what was the value you had that had you persevere and be resilient through it versus now saying, hey, if that happens again, you know, I take the advice of, of counsel. And it's really important. I mean, our our lives change, Rich, right? We, you know, when you and I met right out of college and working on careers, we could have done anything. Like, you know, it, it, we didn't have that personal responsibility. Our responsibilities were probably to each other more than anything else yeah. uh, in, our, in our in our business as partners. But as you grow and evolve, you do have family, you do have responsibilities, you know, you, you never know where life is going to take you, but your values do change along the way in terms of who you are responsible to and how you're supposed to, to go that way. And, you know, what, what I really loved, uh, and we didn't spend enough time talking about, it. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Venn diagram of art, science, and luck. No. And, and I thought that was awesome. We you know, talked about, you know, the, those three circles where art, science, and luck come together. That's really where opportunities are. Uh, I really love that explanation that you have to create your own luck. You have to have the creative art side. You have to have the learning and the science, and then you'll meet that guy on the escalator, that person on the escalator that could become your next customer or your you know next long-term relationship. Right. Um, so that's where opportunities happen. And the way that he evolved out of his situation, uh, I think it has a big contribution to who he is now as a dad premier and how he's helping other entrepreneurs grow. So that's, that was that was a big, 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 um, you know, conversation here that I love. And when you use the term dadpreneur, I think that's a cool term. And I liked his answer when I said, so what is it as a dad that transfers over to being yep. an entrepreneur? And the three answers that he had were uh, being a leader, teaching independent thinking, and finance. I'm going to yep. tell a story to you. Uh, yep. And I know our listeners are hearing the story. Did I ever tell you the story about how Kaylin, our 18-year-old who happens to be uh, in the Navy, uh, her buying a motorcycle? Did I tell you about that? I don't think so. 
So we're sitting in the pool over at my wife's mother's house and she comes up, this is like two years ago and says, Hey, I think I want to buy a motorcycle. My wife's like, no way, not buying a motorcycle. I'm like, well, what are the conditions by which we would actually let you buy it? So I proceeded to lay them out. I said, okay, you would have to buy the entire thing. We're not investing a penny. You'd have to have all the safety gear. You would have to take a safety class. You'd have to pay for the safety class, take the safety class. Uh, you would not be allowed to drive after uh, dusk or before dawn. Uh, you're not allowed to drive in inclement weather. You can never put anything, anyone on the back of the motorcycle. Um, and you're going to have to do all the research. So it's 100% on you and you've got to do all the safety stuff. On the bet that we knew this was a kid who was going to buy a motorcycle either way. Yep. We yep. wanted to control some of the safety stuff when she was younger so that when she turned 18, it's not like get a motorcycle and never wear a helmet. Sure. Well, take a guess what? Over the next year, she scooped ice cream for a job at the local ice cream shop, saved almost every penny, did all of her own research, did all the right things, bought herself a $3,000 Harley Sportster at 17 years old, her own money. Uh, got the insurance, paid for the insurance, took the safety class, wore all the safety gear every single time. The reason I bring that up is both as a, as a dad, a dadpreneur being proud and wanting to share that story. But in addition to other than just being proud, what a story she exemplifies that can transfer over to business of having a vision of something really important you want, going to a coach parents in this case, and finding out what exactly is a path on how to get there from a coach, and then buckling down, doing all of the hard work, saving and investing, doing all of the research for that to culminate in buying a motorcycle. And I know there are probably parents who are listening who are like, your kid bought a motorcycle at, at 17 years old? Yeah, she did. And I'm proud of it. The way she went about doing it, I learned lessons from this, yep. this financial teaching to kids, it's very similar to some of the financial teachings and lessons uh, yep. that entrepreneurs use. Yeah, no doubt. And it's, it's interesting because as a dadpreneur as well, you know, you think about all the different ways your kids watch what you do, right? They'll watch and see, do you over lever yourself or how you save and how you, you know, think about money, right? They see that on an ongoing basis. And the, the tips and tricks to start teaching your kids about financial literacy at a young age so that they, when they do go into young adulthood, they keep remembering that. Like I remember, for example, my father, right? He would always buy a car and keep it for 10 years. And it'd, it'd be like, that. you can afford a new car. He's like, yeah, I don't need a new car. I got a car, you know, but that he was saving money all those years, right? Those are things I remember as a young kid. And the influence we have as dadpreneurs or mompreneurs to our kids and the, the responsibility I think we also have to help teach them and lead them from a financial literacy perspective is so critical, especially in this day and age, Rich. We're heading into you know, the next few decades where we're living in a gig economy. Uh, you know, people people you know, kind of have to fend for themselves, quite honestly. You can't depend on working for a company for four years and getting a pension like our parents did, right? You have to develop that financial literacy and develop those skills to fend for yourself, to take care of yourself, and then also as with it happened with Alex, at some point, start having responsibility for your own family and the, and the financial responsibilities there. So I really love that 
and, and, and I think you know that this hit a spot for me where you know his biggest learning as an entrepreneur was don't be over levered yes. and run a cash flow profitable business. And I learned the hard way, just like him. I had successes and failures. Certainly the failures was certainly related to you know a lot of uh, you know over leverage on a business versus my success was running a cash flow profitable debt-free business and reinvesting profitable cash into the business to grow, not bank debt. Huge difference. And I think that learning from him is, is, is one we could have talked about for much longer than we did today. Well, I got to say, I'm happy to have met Alex and I can see why he's a successful entrepreneur. I can see why he's a successful dad and just some of the principles that he goes with and just very happy to have had him on the podcast today.